Hey, what's up, y'all? Alan Kenny, host of Blatant Homerism Podcast, part of Crimson and Cream Machine on the SB Nation network of podcasts. College football is now over with uh, Oklahoma having bowed out of the college football playoff race and a uh, blowout loss to LSU. Let's not linger on that. Let's go ahead and turn the page. It's college basketball season. Uh, you know, pretty much uh, every major conference has started, uh, you know, its own kind of in-conference games. Uh, the Sooners are off to a solid start after a home win over Kansas, the Kansas State Wildcats. But, you know, let's look at some of the, maybe the bigger themes uh, around college basketball so far to start the season what we might have missed and what's worth watching uh, as always um, you know the uh, preeminent hoops ex- expert in the blogosphere Matt Zemek is uh, joining us to fill us in on uh, what we might have missed so far and what we need to be paying attention to so let's go ahead and welcome him on Matt how you doing Doing well. Happy New Year, Alan. Same to you. Same to you, man. So, hey, while I got you on here, um, you know, you uh, write for a lot of different outlets, you know, uh, it, as, as you know, over the course of uh, your career. What, what are you up to right now? Tell everybody where they can find your stuff. So I have an interim gig as uh, the editor of Badger's Wire, which is one of those USA Today Gannett uh, college sports sites. So it's just a December, January gig, but it's been fun. So badgerswire.com where we're talking about Wisconsin football and and Wisconsin hoops and things have picked up for Wisconsin hoops the past two weeks. So that's good for business, as they say. And then I'm still going to do the thing at Patreon. And uh, the big news at Patreon, where I've been covering college football and doing a podcast for the first time at Patreon, the Get Off My Pylon College Football Podcast. You were my first guest on that show. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, right. I'm going to be I'm going to be debuting the free throw awareness college basketball podcast in January. So I'm just going to continue podcasting at Patreon, but now I'm going to shift into the basketball side. And there's going to be a mix of football and basketball in the off season, but it's going to be basketball now through early April in the final four. All right. Excellent. Well, uh, I'm a big fan of uh, Get Off My Pylon, so uh, looking forward to what you got uh, coming for us with uh, College Hoops. But let's go ahead. You know, I asked you to come on and, like I mentioned, just talk a little bit about some of the big picture stories or what people, what's been interesting uh, to you so far about this season. Um, for me, one thing is that it just doesn't seem like there's a lot going on. Well, it's just no one wants to be number one, and I've seen it tweeted in a few places, and I think it's a very accurate tweet that the 2020 college basketball season is trying to be the 2007 college football season. I mean, that that's really what's going on, uh, <laughs> that, that you, you, if you get to the top, you're going to get knocked off right away. I mean, that the five different teams have been ranked number one and, and have lost as the number one team at the time the game was played. And then Gonzaga, the current number one, uh, scratched through two ugly wins to start the West Coast Conference season, beat Pepperdine, which is a sub-500 team, uh, by I think five points. It was a three-point game in the final 10 seconds, and Gonzaga blocked a game-tying three from Pepperdine. So no one seems to want to be number one. There is no clear dominant team, and I don't think there's a, a, a dominant team waiting to emerge. And so uh, if I might, Alan, I'm just going to slide into one of the three big themes uh, is that, you know, if you ask bracketologists right now who has the best resume in the United States, Butler. Mm -hmm. Butler would be the number one overall seed right now. So does that tell you how uh, disordered and uncertain this whole season is? So 
Uh, one of the big stories is, you know, are we going to see very untraditional number one seeds? Uh, you could have Butler as a one seed in the Midwest. Uh, you could have San Diego State as a one seed in the in the West. Uh, we could get a really untraditional top line. Uh, so, you know, based on what we've seen so far, I'm not predicting that's going to happen, but it's certainly in play. So, uh, and and that is kind of connected to, are we seeing an era of chaos in college basketball? I mean, is this what we're going to have in the 2020s, given that we had a Final Four with Auburn, Texas Tech, and Virginia mm-hmm. last year? Are we going to now have just a lot of uh, untraditional Final Fours? Uh, you know, hey, per- personal opinion for a moment, sign me up for that. But but uh, just purely from an analytical standpoint, you know, is this what we're going to have? I mean, I don't know, but it's it certainly is a major big picture question uh, facing the sport of college basketball this season. So that, that that's one of the bigger storylines. I mean, Gonzaga and San Diego State. I mean, would they both be kept as the top two seeds in the West, or would one of them be bumped to let's say the South as a one seed? Mm-hmm. I mean, that. Imagine just imagine a top line with Butler, San Diego State, Gonzaga, uh, and then maybe Duke might be the one traditional number one seed. And that would be an amazing story to behold on Selection Sunday. And it's a realistic possibility, too. Right. And I'm glad you actually kind of brought up Duke because, you know, Duke, Louisville, I mean, these are pretty strong teams, but. It just seems to me, especially after coming off uh, Virginia's national championship last year, that the ACC as a whole is pretty pretty weak this year relative to past past versions. Well, in North Carolina, it does not look like an NCAA tournament team, and I know that injuries have been a big part of that, but the Tar Heels do have to deal with the reality that when Cole Anthony is not on the court, they're a bad team. Yeah. They're not a decent team. They're not a mediocre team. They're a bad team. So, you know, you, you would expect – North Carolina to have more depth that one player is not so central uh, to that team. Uh, We've just seen, as we record this podcast, Virginia has just lost to Boston College, and Mm -hmm. Boston College was missing two of its top three players in that game. Uh, So, yeah, the the, the ACC is very thin. There are only like five or six really certain uh, NCAA tournament teams. And, you know, so part of this – storyline involving uh, untraditional top seed lines. I mean, Florida State is in great position to get like a two seed. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And Florida State's never been seeded higher than three in its whole history. Uh, so that's another storyline that, that that's, uh, you know, we're going to be watching uh, these next few weeks. So, yeah, the ACC does not is not bringing the quality. It's not bringing the blue bloods. You know, Syracuse is also very safely out of the NCAA tournament. I mean, Syracuse needs to go on a crazy run of success just to get up to the bubble. And I know we're, I know bubble might be a too, too early to use that term, but if we had a bubble, Syracuse isn't even in the same zip code. So, I mean, Syracuse and North Carolina out of the NCAA tournament. I mean, that that's a jarring realization for the ACC this year. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, what's your uh, second big story to watch? So on the second big story is that in, a, in, a, in an NCAA tournament in which Syracuse and North Carolina are looking like uh, they're not going to be part of the dance, we could have Penn State and Rutgers, among other teams, being in the dance. Uh, Rutgers has not been in the NCAA tournament since 1991. And if you look at Penn State's basketball history over the past 30 years or so, 
The Nittany Lions are generally good for one NCAA tournament every 10 years. So this is the, 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 the time is right. right <laughs> this yeah. is pretty much on schedule for that program in terms of how often it gets to the NCAA tournament. So uh, you're, you're, getting, you're getting some new faces that, that will get some chances to create some very rare March milestones. Uh, and, and so, you know, last year we had Liberty. Uh, as a, as a new dance crasher, we had some other you know, particularly uh, new blood stories as part of the NCAA tournament and championship week. So Penn State and Rutgers uh, are two of the more prominent examples of that new blood surfacing this season. Um, there's also, you know, Illinois is not in the same class as uh, Penn State and Rutgers in terms of uh, NCAA tournament misery and 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 being a downtrodden program. I mean, Illinois was playing for the national title just 15 years ago. Nevertheless, Illinois was 12 and 21 last year, and that looks like an NCAA tournament team this year. So there's a, there seems to be a lot of turnover in terms of the composition of the NCAA tournament, and and no schools represent that more than Penn State and Rutgers. But but Illinois is another example of how if if your program is going nowhere for a few years. Just wait a little bit; it might turn around. Um, we're seeing resilience from programs that go through bad times. Uh, they're they're finding some good times this year. Yeah, you know, looking here, uh, looking at Ken Pomeroy's ratings. Uh, I mean, Penn State at number twenty-five. That's shocking. You never see see something like that. You know, I mean, ahead of the team like uh, Houston, LSU, Villanova. Absolutely. And, 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 and Rutgers was without Geo Baker, one of its core players, and Rutgers beat that Penn State team. Uh, and that's part of a Big Ten landscape in which, uh, as of right now, uh, and we had Maryland beating Ohio State at home on mm-hmm. Tuesday night just after uh, we, we were recording just after that result as well, Alan. As of right now, only two of the 14 teams in the Big Ten have more than one loss at home, and that's Nebraska and Northwestern. Uh, the, the 12 of the 14 teams in that league have lost no more than one time at home. So it, it's really, that points to the instability of the sport in that as soon as teams get away from their own home floors, yeah. uh, it's hard for them to break through. There's a lot of home road splits in terms of teams having different identities based on where they play games uh, that's a big part of the instability that has marked this season thus far. Yeah, you know, the Big Ten uh, is an interesting case, too, because, I mean, that's a really deep league. You look at I'm looking at it right now with Kim Palm's reigns. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight of 14 teams in the top 25. That's a murderer's row, man. It is, and Ohio State, with that loss to Maryland, is 1-3 in the Big Ten, but because Ohio State's won at North Carolina and beat Kentucky on a neutral floor, among other high-quality wins, Ohio State is still an NCAA tournament team, but yet it's getting shredded by you know, a Big Ten that is deep, but we don't really know which are the top-tier teams in that league because because it, it just whether you're playing at home or on the road in that conference uh, seems to dictate whether you win or lose. So, you know, the, the Big Ten race is going to change based on who racks up road wins. Uh, and, and that's what made Wisconsin's win over Ohio State in Columbus this past mm-hmm. Friday so significant. Wisconsin uh, had only one road win, and that was over Tennessee. Tennessee without Lamonte Turner, uh, the senior point guard, um, he got injured just before that Wisconsin game. So Wisconsin needed to show 
you know, in Big Ten play and against a better team than Tennessee, uh, that it could win away from home, uh, and it did. So that that's part of the transformation we've seen with Wisconsin the past two weeks. So any other Big Ten teams that can grab high-end road wins, they're going to rise to the top, and they're going to get the top four seeds in the Big Ten tournament. Right, right. All right, what's your third story? So the third story takes everything that I've talked about thus far, the untraditional, the potential for a very untraditional top two seed lines and the rise of programs such as Penn State and Rutgers, all those cross currents and uh, the struggles of some of the Blue Bloods, how is that going to affect the coaching carousel? I mean, the two most prominent coaches on the hot seat are Archie Miller of Indiana and especially Shaka Smart of Texas. So... I, you know, in, ter- in terms of how this season evolves, Alan, if if all the blue bloods are mediocre, or virtually all, almost all the blue bloods are mediocre. You know, North Carolina, uh, Syracuse, you know, and, and then several others in the other top conferences. Um, you know, if if everybody pervasively isn't that strong, no, you know, the cream never really rises to the top. Is that going to make athletic directors of high-profile, underperforming coaches, is that going to make them hold their coaches, uh, retain them for another season, or is it going to make them bail? Uh, you know, so, and, and let's, let's look at the flip side. If a few teams do emerge from this jumble that we have right now, you know, is that going to make ADs panic and think, oh, we, we're, we're well behind the curve. We need to, we're not nearly where, you know, those few elite teams are. Is that going to you know affect how ADs uh, handle uh, situations at Texas and Indiana if the Longhorns and the Hoosiers uh, and a few other teams you could put in the same basket if they don't make the NCAA tournament? So you know, given the larger landscape, how is that going to affect the carousel in April? I'm going to be very interested to see how that all plays out. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Texas because I was hoping we could talk a little bit about some of the stories in the Big 12. But, uh, you know, starting there, uh, you know, I mean, the Longhorns, I believe, are, you know, 10 and 3 right now. But that's just not a particularly strong team. I get the feeling that, uh, you know, as Big 12 play really heats up, uh, they're going to struggle. And uh, just kind of where things are with that program, you know, I, I, I just I can't imagine that they'd hold on to Shaka Smart if this is not an NCAA tournament team this year. I would I would think that he absolutely has to get to the dance to save his job. Absolutely. And, you know, Texas scored roughly 40 points yeah. against Baylor. I mean, you know, we went we went through a whole season last year watching ugly Texas rock fight after ugly Texas rock fight. And we all wonder, you know, is there is there something in the water down there that's preventing Texas from being able to put the ball in the basket? I mean, and, you know, and obviously – Coaches can't entirely control if their their shooters, you know, shoot bricks or not. But you would think that there is enough talent, uh, and that Shaka Smart is is a good enough recruiter to get decent shooters. I mean that 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 has been just a very perplexing mystery in Austin that Texas continues to not be able to shoot well on a consistent basis. I mean I I I. I I'm not going to fault Shaka as a as a shot doctor, as a mm-hmm. teacher of shooting. Again, there only there there are a lot of limitations there in terms of what a coach can do. But uh, really, is are, are Texas shooters really that different from the rest of the country? It's just, it blows my mind, quite frankly. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm with you. But, uh, you know, the Big 12 race, obviously, you know, Kansas, this is uh, look, looking to kind of get back on top. And obviously there's been so much, uh, you know, kind of going around the, that program with uh, the NCAA issues and whatnot. I mean, you know, the Big 12, though, to me looks, I mean, per usual, pretty deep. Uh, it does. I, I think that, uh, you know, the the fact that Kansas now has Udoka Azubuki uh, back mm-hmm. in the lineup, I mean, that was that was such a glaring uh, void for the Jayhawks last year that they were so thin inside. And just having that, you know, if their their defense now is at a point where, you know, Kansas, Kansas can win a bunch of, of slugfests, and, and one of them was against West Virginia Mm-hmm. Uh, th- this past weekend. So, you know, I think that w- from what I've seen of the league, it's it's all lined up for Kansas to take back the league after what we saw with Texas Tech. I mean, Texas Tech, uh, I think, is going to be solid. But, uh, you know, you can – Chris Beard, you know, he worked such amazing magic losing uh, Jair Smith and Keenan yeah. Evans and, you know, coming right back because Jarrett Culver was amazing – Mm-hmm. Uh, for most of last season, but you know, the, the, being able to to win in spite of two losing two NBA players, to be able to now lose Culver and replace that, it, it's hard to imagine Texas Tech functioning with the same level of efficiency, and that's pretty much what we have seen this season. I mean, you know, the, Texas Tech is still, I think, going to be a top three Big Twelve team, but to expect what we what we saw from Texas Tech last year. I don't think that's particularly realistic in 2020. Right. And, you know, Scott Drew's a guy that I mean, I've, I've, you know, hammered, uh, you know, just like everybody else in the past, but uh, he has Baylor looking really strong at this point. Yeah. I mean, you know, a decade ago, you know, the, the whole Scott Drew thing and, and, uh, and how we'd all laugh at those Scott Drew, um, Travis Ford matchups when Baylor oh, played Oklahoma yeah. state. Yeah, I mean, you know, but he he's he's ch- changed himself. I mean, there's no doubt about it that he Scott Drew is a guy who does more with less, and it's the inverse of what we used to see from him. I mean, mm-hmm. he he has evolved. You know, he's clearly studied up. I mean, it's not the same scale as Dabo Swinney at Clemson, but it is like a a smaller scale version mm-hmm. uh, that he really seemed to be so out of his element as a coach uh, in terms as a tactician. And being able to get his team to not only adjust within games, but to handle the ups and downs of a season. Um, you know, when when past Baylor teams, you know, roughly ten years ago, ran into adversity, it would all really go south very quickly. And that's what you don't. That's what you do not see from these more recent uh, Scott Drew teams at Baylor. And you know, the job that he's doing is really remarkable. Uh, you know, he doesn't have the uh, the final four to show for it, but you know, Hey, Baylor's made a multiple sweet 16s without rosters that I would view as, you know, especially uh, overwhelming. Uh, And I, and one could actually say that his most athletic teams uh, haven't gone as deep into the NCAA tournament as his more cohesive teams. Uh, The teams that didn't have as much jump out of the building talent, but they worked really well together. Um, so, you know, he, you know, the past five, six years have certainly cemented a very different reputation for Scott Drew compared to what we once knew. Right. I I agree. Totally. Um, last thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, you know, past years we've seen, you know, one of the big stories has been all the freshmen, you know, last year it was Zion Williamson. 
Um, you know, obviously the Weissman kid from Memphis, uh, you know, that, that was a big story and we saw him get what one game, I guess, for the Tigers. Uh, but where, where are all the, uh, the big name freshmen that we're supposed to be watching for? Well, you know, it's, I think it's hard to see, to notice the big time freshmen when teams are in the midst of trying to find themselves. And I think that, you know, when a team is trying to find itself, it's going to follow that the younger players on rosters across the country are also finding themselves. I mean, we, we haven't really seen uh, tra- transcendent freshmen, you know, rise up this season. And, you know, I, I'm not going to say that it's part of a, of any kind of cycle or any kind of pattern. I'm not going to say it's based on uh, college basketball's evolving relationship with the NBA and with more players uh, opting to, you know, not even go to college, but to go to go to Europe uh, for one year, you know, and then and then going into the NBA. I don't know what you know the reason is. I'm not going to est- uh, try to establish causality, but for whatever reason, this this season we haven't had that same dynamic. Right, just not a lot of uh, the splashy uh, newcomers. So, um, all right, give everybody one team that uh, is kind of uh, flying under the radar right now that you think that they ought to keep their eye on uh, come March. Well, you know, the, Oregon is a is a high-profile team in the sense that the Ducks were everyone's preseason pick uh, mm-hmm. to, to win the Pac-12, but Oregon stumbled uh, in, in its first uh, Pac-12 series. It had a road swing through the Rocky Mountains to Colorado and Utah, so it lost in Colorado. It did win in Utah, but you know Colorado was the more high-profile game. I have to think that Dana Altman is going to get that team turned around, and the reason why I say that, beyond Dana Altman being you know an excellent coach, say what you want about his ethics, which are you know trash bin level, but he could, he's an he's an excellent coach on the court on on game night. But the reason why I think Oregon should be able to come together and rise to the forefront, maybe to the point where it can challenge uh, Gonzaga and San Diego State for a high-end seed in the West region, is that Peyton Pritchard, mm-hmm. Peyton Pritchard is that, you know, eight-year senior, you know, yeah. like Dugan Fife, uh, you know, the, yeah, the other yeah. players that we remember, Brian Evans of Indiana, you know, those players who seem to be at their programs forever. So Peyton Pritchard is like the Pac-12 version of that player. Uh, he, he's a point guard who has continued to evolve, and he obviously knows how to coach that team on the floor and be an extension of Dana Allman. I mean, it hasn't entirely come together, but Pritchard did win that road game at Michigan in December. It was That was a CBS game. A lot of people got to see that. Uh, that was played before Army-Navy. Um, I have to think that Peyton Pritchard is going to become, you know, the, the take-charge Pac-12 player who can get, get get Oregon to a very high seed line by the time Selection Sunday arrives. Yeah, that's a name that Sooner fans remember. Spurney know you kind of late in the yeah, recruiting cycle to head out to uh, Oregon. Uh, yeah, but a great player and definitely a nice floor general out there for the Ducks. So you're de- definitely a guy to watch. Um, well, Matt, thanks so much, man. Really appreciate it. And let everybody know again where they can find your stuff. Yeah, so I'm at, for just through the month of January, it's a temp gig, uh, I'm the interim editor of the Badgers Wire at badgerswire.com, uh, and then in, later in January, stay tuned for my uh, on my Twitter feed, which is at Matt Zemek, Z-E-M-E-K, 
Uh, I will be debuting the Free Throw Awareness College Basketball Podcast, and that'll be a a weekly podcast, just like Get Off My Pylon has been for college football. All right. Oh, one last thing, Matt. Give us a uh, pick in the national championship game, LSU versus Clemson. Clemson 27-24, something in that nature, in that vein. I think that Brent Venables uh, is going to find a way to get to Joe Burrow, which I think is the whole ballgame. You know, it's whether mm-hmm. Clemson can rush Joe Burrow, hit him, bother him, annoy him, uh, get him thinking a little, overthinking a little bit. I think that's the whole ballgame. I think Clemson's going to be able to do that, much as Auburn did to Burrow uh, in late October. All right. Well, again, Matt, thanks so much for joining us, man. I really do appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Alan. Take it easy. All right. Again, that's our guest, Matt Zemick. Make sure to look for his stuff over at Badger's Wire, as you mentioned, and also, uh, you know, check out his uh, Twitter handle there, at Matt Zemick. He's always, uh, you know, coming up with great insights and uh, good running commentary during games. And uh, thanks to you all for joining us, too. Please make sure to rate, review, subscribe, wherever it is you get your podcasts. And we'll check you all out later. Uh, For the Blade Homerism Podcast, I'm Alan Kenny. Take it easy.